The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts, combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. What's up, everybody? Good to have you here with us. I'm Jason with Savage Actual. I got my co-host, Mr. I'll let him say his What's own up? name. What's up? Dude? What's up, everybody? I'm Patrick Maltrup, and I'm happy to have everybody here. Yeah, we have a really cool guest with us, our first PJ Air Force pararescue man by the name of Mr. Jason Sweet, you sexy bastard. And uh, it's good to see your face again, man. It's been a hot minute. How you doing, man? My man, I am doing good. It's great to see you too. I'm uh, I'm super pumped to be on the Savage Actual Podcast. And for our listeners out there, man, Jason is a real savage and a great human being. So, uh, man, I'm pumped to be here, Jay. And, and Patrick, it's been great uh, catching up with you a little bit too, my man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Great meeting you. It's it's great to see another uh, medical guy and have a, have a fucking chat about love and life and everything that goes along with it so happy to have you on yeah man let's get it you know the, the special operations realm for our listeners out there obviously is pretty heavily focused on the seals and you know green berets marsoc rangers especially too and uh our air force brethren and sisters our cct our pjs are really highly overlooked you know and it's it's all media based right you know it's really dependent on movies and whatnot and <laughs> And that's, that's really where you get your information from. I mean, where else do you get it? You know what I'm saying? So the PJ realm is a realm that's not widely known, and I'm, I'm super honored to have a PJ on here and to talk about your lifestyle, brother, to talk about that realm and, uh, and that. So and what a great human being to, to represent your tribe of uh, pararescuemen, man. So uh, let's, uh, let's do what we usually do, man. Let's back it up, dude. So... Uh, Back it up, man. Where did you grow up? Dude, I grew up right down here in the great state of Florida, up here in the Panhandle, man. And and the cool thing about this little area up here near Pensacola, Destin, is from what I've heard, we've got the highest military density per population in the entire country. So you got wow. Naval Air Station Pensacola, right? Every every naval aviator goes through NAS Pensacola. And then you got seven special forces group. There's about a thousand personnel up there. I think there's a couple hundred Green Berets, and then you've got seven, eight hundred support personnel. That's up in Crestview, so about 45 minutes north of me. And then you got Eglin Air Force Base. That's where the I think it's the the 55th Fighter Wing or 56th Fighter Wing. I think the name has changed, uh, but it is a big Air Force Base. Then you get Air Force Special Operations Command. I live about 10 minutes west of, of AFSOC, and that's Herbert Field Air Force Base. And then about an hour east of us is Panama City. That's where Marine Combatant Dive School is, Air Force Combat Dive School, 
and uh, and Navy dive school. So the non-combat dive school is where the EOD bubbas go through, and uh, and the standard Navy divers go through. Then you got Tyndall Air Force Base, and then you got Whiting Field, which is about thirty minutes away from me, man. That's where all EOD personnel go through their training. So Navy, right. Army, Air Force, my man, we are loaded up with military personnel down here. So. My dad was actually a PJ uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s, and he was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base when there was a pararescue team there. It was called the 1730th Pararescue Squadron. So I was born in a little town right outside Eglin Air Force Base called Valparaiso. And uh, fast forward now, 2023, I was born in 1988, 80s baby, and uh, my (laughs) my wife and I bought our first house here in Navarre. Uh, a couple years ago, man. So, so we're real blessed to be here in the panhandle of Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So you had that military upbringing. Um, and I know earlier you mentioned, uh, that your grandfather was a vet too, right? Yeah, man. He served in the Navy and, uh, and then my dad obviously was a, uh, a PJ in the air force and, and he got out when I was, I want to say three or four years old, man. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with that mission in Panama. It was the Noriega hit, right? So that general yeah, Noriega, yep. he, he was, he was, uh, on the grid for war crimes and, and we sent a bunch of Rangers down there and, and a SEAL team, I believe. And it was a static line jump, seized the airfield. There were combat controllers, PJs. And that was actually my dad's unit uh they got that mission and the air force special nice. operations side of the house right but they were doing like a three-week spin-up for that mission and the air force was like hey look maurice is is my dad's name maurice sweet and like maurice your, your re-enlistment comes up right about the time of this mission so my man you got to make a choice <laughs> like you're, you're either going to go on a little bit mission. of a setup oh That's dude set yeah. up right there like what yeah <laughs> And, 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 you know, we talked about my granddad a, a little bit earlier. My, my papa is, is, is who I call him, Bob Sweet, on my dad's side. And he's a great man. Don't get me wrong. I love him to death. God rest his soul. He passed away uh, five years ago. But he was never really uh, consistently around for my dad. You know, he kind of showed up whenever it was convenient for him. Uh, and so my dad grew up with a, a single mom and, uh, and three big sisters. And so my dad, you know, he, he loved me very much growing up, man. You know, he was hard on me. He was strict on me. I thank him very much for that. But he was a loving dad. And, um, you know, the Air Force gave him that decision like, hey, dude, you, you're either going to reenlist or, you know, get out. And he was gone about 230, 240 days on average. Like his job at the 1730s was to augment our tier one guys. And that's called the 24 Special Tactics Squadron now. But at the time, it was called NAFCOS. It was a JSOC unit. Uh, they called it the Hill. You know, guys growing their beards out, wearing civilian clothes to work, top secret security clearances. And so they were augmenting those boys all the time. And so my dad made the decision. Uh, to not re-enlist. And so he missed out on the mission of a lifetime uh, to raise me and and be a loving dad. So I, I am very grateful for that, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So when... So uh, I know you're a football dude, man. Did, did you play? Did you play growing up as well? Yeah, man. I played a little bit of football growing up, but I just got my ass ran over all the time, dude. Like I, I wasn't super big. I wasn't super fast. You know, it, it wasn't until I, I had gone through pararescue. And uh, my eligibility clock had paused that that I had actually walked on the, the U of A football team and, yeah. uh, and played some D1 college football. You know, we can get into that later on in the story. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, you know, growing up, 
uh, you got this influence from the military, especially your old man, and especially growing up in that AO, you know, a little bit of football, so you had that team atmosphere. So, like, what point, you know, in little Jason Sweet's life, man, did you, like, damn, I might, I might, I might do the Air Force, or I might do the military? Like, were you considering other branches? Like, like what age did you, this hit you? Like, I'm going to do this shit. Oh, dude, yeah. I, I grew up, you know, j- just playing baseball. Like, I ended up getting a, a baseball scholarship to a school in Phoenix called Grand Canyon University. And they're a little oh, yeah. deep. You, you've heard of Grand Canyon GCU? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I, I see the, I mean, that's, I'm in California, so right right near the border. So I see those, uh, I see the commercials for Grand Canyon University all the time. Yeah, man, it's a great school. It's a Christian school. God's doing great things. Yeah, I had a great time there at that at that university. Um, they offered me a full ride baseball scholarship. The only school that offered me a full ride, you know, in baseball, it's, it's pretty tough to, to get a full ride. You know, I had like a a thirty percent offer from New Mexico and, and various other schools, Baylor, but GCU was like, hey, man, we really want you here. It's a full ride scholarship, so. Uh, I took that offer and uh, and I played there for a year and, and my whole life was was based around baseball. Like my dad had never uh, pushed me to go into the military. Uh, he told me a little bit of stories about pararescue and in the pipeline, but he was a peacetime PJ. So you know, he had a really cool mission to Ethiopia, uh, doing some uh, personnel recovery PR, which is the the PJ bread and butter. Um, but besides that, man, you know, he, he didn't really get a lot of action as a PJ. So most of his stories were, you know, the crazy pipeline days and, and those boys going out and getting into trouble and, and awesome training stories and stuff like that. You know, and I, I just loved his stories, man. But yeah. uh, I was full sin baseball. You know, I was under the impression that uh, I was going to play professionally and all of that. Um, and I signed as a pitcher. And I believe that uh, every pitcher has like a God-given genetic throw count, man. Like eventually, like after you throw however many hundred thousand baseballs, like your arm just, it, it's going to stop working. And um, when I was 13 years old, to rewind a little bit, man, like we, we had lived in Florida, right? So, so we moved to Arizona when I was 13, a little town called Payson. And this town is about an hour northeast of Phoenix. We're talking like a real deal cowboy town like you hear about in the country songs. I mean, it was awesome, man. Like quads and, and horseback riding and shooting shotguns and, you know, crazy freaking dads in the stands for football games. Like it was a really good time, man. And I played football in high school. I was all right. I was a running back. I returned punts. I played safety. But I didn't even get considered to play in college. So like in order to try to get out of that town and get a scholarship and get a life for myself, I played all these traveling baseball tournaments down in Phoenix and, and in Phoenix it's year round game time, right? So all my eggs were, were in that baseball basket. And, um, and so I played it at GCU a year and, uh, I worked my way into the starting rotation and first game of the season, man, like, like my gift was gone. I went from throwing 90, 91 mile an hour fastball, good movement, good command, to just throwing 80 miles an hour, which is which is nothing in NCAA baseball. And uh, my arm just kind of it started hanging after like 20 pitches. That's a term we use for for hurting and, and just lacking function. And and in the pitching world, you call it dead arm whenever your arm just stops working, man. So like everything just just kind of stopped right there, you know. And and you know I'll kind of get into to why I chose pararescue in a bit. Uh, but that was kind of like my life before the Air Force. There was never yeah, so, any consideration. So when you, were in, you were in GCU and that was about a year into you playing baseball there that happened? 
Yeah, man. So, so I graduated high school in 2007 and, uh, and I was playing G, uh, baseball at GCU in 2008. So I was about 18, 19 years old at the time. Okay. Wow. Wow, man. So then you're, you go through the, all that, your fucking arm gives out. I'm sure the, I mean, that's the thing is when your whole college career is online with what you're doing, your performance as an athlete, uh, that's crazy. I've never heard something like that before. Do they approach you and say, uh, sorry, we're going to have to fucking let you go. You're, you're losing your scholarship. You know, man, they actually did not take my scholarship away. They renewed it for my sophomore year. And obviously I didn't, I didn't end up playing my sophomore year, but I spent the whole season on what's called the disabled list, man. And I tried everything. I tried like cortisone shots acupuncture. I tried to like lower my arm slot and throw it a different angle. Um, I was a hard worker. I'm a, I was always doing drills and, and stuff like that. So I decided to try to back off on the drills to give my arm a rest and, and just nothing worked, man. Like it was an emotional roller coaster. But if that yeah. wasn't bad enough, man, my mom got this surgery uh, called a hysterectomy. And this surgery really screwed her up, man. Like it gave her what's called hypothyroidism. So she didn't have like the the proper chemical balance in, in her body. And she went from being like this incredibly positive, like optimistic, amazing, social, gravitating person to just like this, this vegetable, man. And like she was so depressed all the time and it just sucked the life out of my family. And one thing I didn't tell y'all is that when my dad got out of the military like him and my mom they started refurbishing houses and doing like remodel jobs and like my dad came all the way up from like us living in a trailer in Valparaiso Florida to being one of the most prominent home builders in Northwest Florida I mean he was the president of the home builders association down there he's built over 300 houses in Destin Florida I mean the dude was just balling and so he had to travel back to Florida to run his business, right? And when my mom got sick and she was almost on the verge of dying several times, he couldn't go back to Florida to take care of her, man. So the business started falling apart. And for our listeners out there, I assume most of you are youngins. In 2008, like you guys think this this kind of uh, economy is bad right now. In 2008, you know, everyone was in real estate and the entire housing market crashed and people just got crushed. Like so many people went bankrupt. And so my dad actually went bankrupt. So my mom's dying. My dad is like, in, in a really tough spot in his life, we go bankrupt, right? And then I have my my gift gone, all at the same time. So this was this was tough for me, man, and it just got worse. Damn, man. So you're twenty at this time, I'm guessing, ish. So I just turned nineteen at the time, right? And like. Part of my scholarship was was the meal plan, and like we had a little dining facility at GCU, and and you know how it is in college, man. You stay up till like midnight or like one a.m. So I go to bed at like nine a.m. and wake up at four a.m. now, right? But in college, like I'd be going to bed at like midnight, and, and I wasn't that great of a student, but I did my homework, man, and a lot of my homework. It, it took a long time, and and I would get really hungry, and my parents didn't have any money to give me. And I was so broke and, and I didn't have the humility to ask for help that um, I did the only thing that I know how to do. And uh, so I would actually go to Walmart 
and I'd order uh, chicken strips from, from the deli. And uh, instead of paying for them, I'd act like I was shopping around Walmart and, and I would eat and munch on these chicken strips. And uh, <laughs> I know, right? I know, right? So I'm like stealing chicken from, not taking it from Walmart, so technically not stealing, but eating their chicken without paying for it, right? And I had a, a BlackBerry phone at the time, right? So like for our listeners out there, you guys don't even know about the BlackBerry, man. This, this phone was like it back in the day and uh so i'd like pick up the blackberry and like drop the shopping cart and act like i had a phone call and this is phoenix arizona right so there's like 50 walmarts in in the valley area and i just kind of rotate around walmarts like every night every couple nights and and that's how i fed myself man damn damn that's heavy that's survival yeah, man. And, and I got I got sick of doing that. And, you know, I can't get into it on the podcast. You know, I, I wish I could get into the details, uh, but I found a different way to make money. And, and, and this was was not legal. We'll put it that way. And, and this led me down a, a destructive path for the next three or four months and, and put me places that I never thought that I would see myself. So really, man, like I was in, I was in an extremely low place in my life, you know, the, the gutter. And if that wasn't bad enough, like this, this little bit of, of money that I had, and I worked so hard for and took these huge risks to make, um, I developed a, a gambling addiction. So I got a fake ID from, from one of my, one of my teammates that was a senior and I won't name drop him right now, but, but we kind of looked alike <laughs> and, uh, there's all these casinos in Arizona. We got a bunch of native American reservations, right? And they can, they can put up casinos and yep, yep. So I, I read this book called, uh, the black belt and blackjack and, and I, and I didn't read the full thing. Okay, you know, shame on me for not having attention to detail and the discipline to read a book from cover to cover. That's not me now. I'll crush some books from cover to cover, attention to detail nowadays. But old Jason skimming through stuff, not paying full attention, man. I kind of read the meat and potatoes of the book. And, so you basically uh, got a green belt in black in blackjack is what you're saying. More like a freaking white belt, man. But like, <laughs> so so for our listeners out there, man, when it comes to counting cards, like you have to know how many shoes are, how many decks are in the shoe yep. in order to do your math right. So if you have like a a, a six deck shoe, your starting count is like minus twelve. But if you have an auto shuffler where you don't even know what your starting count is, there's no way that you can do your math. There's no way that you know when to raise your best and what your advantage is against the house. And I remember going to Casino Arizona trying to count cards and all of their tables were auto shuffles, man. So there's no way that I could get any concept of what my advantage or disadvantage was against the house. And like the first few times I went there, I just crushed it, you know, and made like hundreds of dollars and I got sucked into it. And I just kept going and going, thinking that that, that was going to, to be the way it was, and, and it wasn't, man. And uh, and I just kept going back to this casino, going back to this casino. And it was about that time that, that I had also done something um, that that prevented me from being able to go up to Payson. Uh, I was in danger if I went up there. And so the the freshman year at, at GCU was was over, right? And I didn't have any place to live. Like they boot all the kids out of, of the freaking dorms during the summer. 
And, uh, you know, I hadn't talked to my dad in a while, man. I was kind of ashamed of the life I was living and, and the fact that, like, I didn't have my gift in baseball anymore. And he had invested so much time in me in the past to get me there that I, I just didn't, I didn't want to face my dad, right? Yeah, yeah. So I ended up calling my dad. And I'm like, hey, dad, you know, I don't really want to get into it, man, but I can't go up to Payson right now. I got no place to live. I've been sleeping in my car for the past four weeks down in Phoenix, like passing out in L.A. fitness locker rooms in their chair. I'm sick so of it. So fucking dangerous. Dude. So he's like, check it out, son. Some investors and I built this house in Scottsdale. It's, this was a $1.2 million house. Okay, Shaq O'Neal just got traded to the Suns back in like 2008, 2009 timeframe, 2008 when this was going on. Like this, this house was big enough that like Shaq walked in with his wife to check it out. So just imagine that, right? So he goes, hey, son, the bank's going to foreclose on it. Like we don't own it anymore, but I hid a key down there. And if you want to stay in this house... It's got nothing but a love seat, no electricity, no running water, no food, no nothing, but it's at least some shelter for you, right? So he told me Holy where the shit. key was. And for a few weeks, I was staying in this house, freaking squatting it, bro. So like if it wasn't bad enough, man, and if you kind of look at like the, the symbology behind this, you know, here I am in, in this big house, all this potential, but it's unspoken for and there's nothing in it. And so I'm sleeping in this house, right? And I continue to go to the casino. I'm continuing to live this destructive lifestyle that I'm living in. And all this came really fast, right? And, and one day I go to the casino and I lose everything that I have except for $80. And, and I mean, dude, I had all of, of my money in, in a stack in my pocket at all times, right? It's just this big old roll of cash. And like this cash roll went from fat in the pocket to absolutely nothing. And, and I realized, man, if I don't get out of here, like I'm not even going to be able to have enough gas to get home. I'm not going to be able to feed myself. And so I at least walked out of the freaking casino with $80 left in my name. At least, you have, at least you have a little foresight to be able to do that, man. Because there's, there's, too, and I'm sure you know, there's too many people who don't do that and take it to the end, and then they're fucking left with nothing, you know. Dude, so good it, on you for that. It was bad, man. And but but here's here's a positive note, right? This story takes a turn. This story takes a pivot. And just about every special operator I know, they've had a pivot point in their life that led them to make the decision that they did. And it's that pivot point and that adversity that they got through that allowed them to get through selection that made them strong, that gave them that never quit mindset. It's I'm going to succeed or die because I know what it's like to be in the gutter and I'm never going back there again, right? So little spoiler alert, right? So I leave the casino and I go back to this house, right? And I look up at the stars and in Phoenix, Arizona, you can see every star, man. I mean, the constellations, the Milky Way, and, and I didn't even know it was called Orion's Belt at the time, but I just <laughs> see, see these three beautiful stars just lined up. And I had given my life to Christ when I was like a kid, you know, kind of like 
renewed my faith when I was 13 years old at a church camp, but, but I wasn't really walking with him, man. Like I put him on the shelf, you know, hit him up when I need him, you know, not the way a son should be treating a father. Right. But the good thing about God is that his love is unconditional. He's always there for us. And he's, he's like a PJ, man. He's going to come there in your darkest moment for the rescue. He's not the one that puts you in that situation. That's from our own choice, but he's always there ready when you cry out to him. So I cried out to him that night, man. And I looked up at the stars up at Orion's belt and I said, God, I know you're listening to me. I know you can hear me. I just need some direction. I'm lost. Whatever you want me to do with my life, would you just tell me? You know, because as men, we want results right now. And this this voice in in my head, like all of the, the I didn't even have back hair, dude, but like I got like goosebumps on my back and like the the hair on the back of my head stood. I can't explain it. Like the the feeling that I had when this voice came in my head. The voice goes, Okay, I'll tell you, but how do you want me to give you the message? And in the Bible, God communicates through men to other men quite a bit. And so I repeat back to God. I say, have my dad call me tomorrow. But I'm a skeptic, guys, man. I need evidence. I need things to be black and white. So I was very specific to God with my request. I said, have my dad call me the precise moment that I wake up tomorrow and reveal through him what you want me to do with my life. And keep in mind, I hadn't talked to my dad since I called him up and asked him for a place to live. So this had been four, five, six weeks, something like that. And so I go back into the house, man, and it's like 3 a.m. I mean, I'm strung out, dude. Like I'm, I'm having a tough night, right? And all, keep in mind, all that's in this house is this little freaking love seat with one pillow on it. I'm six one. This love seat's like four feet long, so I'm like curled up in the fetal position. And I tell you guys what, man. Like before I said that prayer, like I was so sick to my stomach from losing all my money that it was hard for me to even stand up straight. I had to like bend over. My stomach hurt. It, it, it felt like. I had just gotten my heart broken by by a woman I loved and or gotten robbed all at once. It was just this this horrible feeling of, of, of impending doom, of helplessness. And I've never been suicidal. Okay. I've never known what that's like. But the best way I can describe it is I wanted to to give up. Yeah. And then when I said that prayer, it rejuvenated me with this sense of hope. So fast forward, I go to bed that night, right? I'm all curled up on, on this freaking four foot love seat. I go to bed at like 3 a.m., right? And keep in mind, nowadays I wake up at 4 a.m. Well, I wake up the next morning. And just the first thing that comes to my mind is, dude, I lost all my money. I'm freaking hopeless. What am I going to do? But then it hit me about that prayer. And I'm like, I got to check my phone, my freaking Blackberry, right? That I used to fake phone calls on at Walmart, stealing chicken. I'm looking around for the Blackberry, man. And there's the one pillow on the ground on this hardwood floor. And I'm like, I bet you it's under that pillow. So I rip up the pillow and there's my Blackberry. And it just went from being lit to dark as if I had gotten a phone call or a text message. And keep in mind, yeah. man, I hadn't talked to my dad in like a month. So I pick up the phone. And it says, Miss Call from Dad, 11.31 a.m. And at that point, I'm like, that's legit. Like, I oh, wonder, 
I wonder what dad's going to say when I call him back. Like, is this really, is this really an answer to my prayers? Is this happening? Am I about to receive redemption? Like what's about to happen? What is the message he's going to give me? So I call my dad back on the phone and he answers right away. And before I can even get a word off, I'll never forget the words. He goes, son, I got somebody who I need you to meet in Tucson, Arizona. His name is Chief Master Sergeant James Sanchez. And he is the PJ chief of the 306 Rescue Squadron. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink-inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. Damn. Holy Damn. shit. All right. All right. So I'm biting, bro. All right. So you're like, <laughs> no Uber back then. Like, how, all right. You're going to go meet fucking <laughs> Mr. Sanchez, dude. So what's up? How, how do you get there? Yeah, man. Yeah, so I, 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 I'm still familiar with the area. area. That's, that's, that's like, what, like three, four hours away to Tucson from where you're at? Oh, no, no, no. No, no, because you're outside of Phoenix, right? Somewhere? So, so I'm in Scottsdale at the time, right? So Tucson's okay. about 100, 100 to 120 miles from Scottsdale yeah, to, yeah. to Davis Mountain. So so we're looking, you know, if you're going 75, 80 mile an hour down the I-10, you know, you get down there yep. at about an hour and a half. So that's, you're right. All right. Let's and, go. Yeah, man. So like, I didn't even own like a suit or anything like that, man. I think I wore like an Adidas <laughs> track suit or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so my dad drives down from from little old Payson, Arizona, and uh, and he meets up. Oh, with your me. dad met you there too, dude. He came down. Yeah. Oh, awesome. damn. He, came, he awesome. came down, and we drove down to Tucson together. So so Chief Sanchez and him went through the pipeline together. Chief Sanchez was one class ahead of him. Okay, and um, so when we went down there, Chief showed me the unit. And keep in mind, man, like I didn't know a whole lot of, about pararescue. Like dad told me some of the stories about the pipeline, but as far as like the gear, the equipment, the dudes, the mission, like I didn't, he didn't really get into that. So when we got down to Tucson, Arizona, and I'm at the 306 hanging out with Super Sanch. I mean, this is a former tier one operator, JSOC guy. I mean, he's done hits with SEAL Team 6 as a JSOC guy in Bosnia, Kosovo. He's got more Afghanistan deployments and Iraq deployments that, that I can even remember. Um, he's been attached to CAG. He's done special activities. I mean, this is a real OG operator here and uh, just the most humble man you'll ever meet. And just, just being around him and, and feeling his presence, like I knew that I wanted to, to be that guy. And so awesome. the next step was, was learning about the tryout, man. Cause like, keep in mind, like I'm a, I'm a college baseball player. Like I'm not doing underwater swims. I'm not ruck marching. <laughs> I sure as hell aren't doing pull-ups, dude. Like, like pitchers don't do upper body workouts. We freaking do little exercise bands and run long distance and do lunges and squats. <laughs> okay so they're like hey dude like cool you know you want to be a pj your dad's a pj great so we have these tryouts twice a year and you got to get through the tryout then you got to do an interview and if we pick you up then we send you off to boot camp and then you got a two and a half year pipeline so i'm just like okay sounds good and at that point man like i changed my number like i got completely clean of everything that i was doing 
and I moved down to Tucson, Arizona, and the commander of the 306, his name was Colonel Bale, and he had two daughters, and they were students at the University of Arizona. One of them was disabled, and the other one had a fiance named Alan Price, and they had this little 850-square-foot house, three bedrooms, and I rented a bedroom there with them for $300 a month, man. So I'm living off a, a $300 a month budget, right? Like I, I changed my phone number. I completely disassociated myself from anybody that I was talking to, dealing with. And I'm living in this 850 square foot house on the U of A campus uh, with this disabled girl and this other girl and her freaking fiance, man. And like my life was completely revolved around training for pararescue. And they had a tryout. I'll never forget the date, man. August 17th of 2008. So the recruiter's like, hey, man, like here's the deal. You got to get through this, this process with me. You need to medically screen. You got to pass a drug test. He's like, are you good? I'm like, I think so, man. Like, I, I think yeah, I'm like, good give me a couple weeks. I think, I think I'm good, right? He's like, uh, okay, well, I'll give you a couple more weeks until you're really good, right? So I went through that entire process, man. And like, you know, we'll get into to later my company and, and SOCOM athlete and, and what we do. But at the time, there was there was no like special operations prep course. There was how no- much? How much time did you have from the time where you're like, okay, time Three to months. fuck my life? How, how long? Three months, bro. Fucking, you, okay, yeah. That's so, good. You- so I had a three month, it's three months until this 306 rescue squadron tryout. And the tryout was a three mile run, had to do it in 21 minutes or less. All right. That's no problem for, for Savage Jason. Okay. Um, but I mean, <laughs> I, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Savage actual Jason, not myself. Right. That's no problem. But for me, right. Three miles, 21 minutes, that, that was no easy task at the time. Um, and then you had to do a three mile ruck march with 55 pounds. Uh, I think that the, the time for that was under 24 minutes. Okay. So eight minutes per mile, nine minutes per mile, something just crazy. You had to run the whole thing. Uh, you had to swim 1500 meters in 34 minutes or less. That's a freestyle slick. Uh, you had to be able to do a 50 meter underwater and then you had to be able to do 10 pull-ups, 60 push-ups. Uh, and 50 sit-ups, right? So this was like the the trial. And then after that, you had a, quote, water con session and then a smoke session that you had to go through and then a suit and tie interview. And I didn't know nothing but an Adidas track suit, right? So like what I would do is I would go, I got an LA Fitness membership and I would go to LA Fitness and I get creative with it. Because keep in mind, like my dad, he taught me a little bit, right? He taught me about things like buddy breathing and, you know, underwater swim technique. Like, I mean, he was way out of the game. He went in the 80s and, and this is 2008, so 20 years later. And so I didn't really know a whole lot to do, but I got creative with it, man. I'd throw these little little three-pound weights in the pool and, and I'd, I'd wear like, you know, sweatpants and a long sleeve shirt to create drag and I'd go and bring like a, a Under Armour duffel bag and like hold my breath and, and put like a weight in one of the pockets and zip it up and swim to the next one, put weight in, you know, zip it up, just getting creative, man, because like my dad told me, you got to be able to, to perform tasks underwater and have dexterity and be calm under pressure. That's what they were looking for in pararescue. So I do that and I hated running, man. So like I would go and run at the U of A campus and like University of Arizona is like 60, 70% women. 
Okay, like it is just loaded with chicks. Trust me, I married a U of A girl, best woman I, I ever know. Sounds fucking sounds horrible, man. Sounds horrible. <laughs> sounds horrible, right? But that was my motivation, dude. Like I'm not gonna look bad in front of these chicks. So I would run on campus, dude, and I just be flying because I didn't want to freaking <laughs> you know look soft in front of these girls. It motivated me. So whatever it took to motivate me, man. But just isolating myself from that toxic environment that I was in was was probably the greatest greatest thing uh, that happened to me, right? Um, so I tried out on uh, on August 17th and there was like, I don't know, seven, eight dudes that, that tried out and, and they picked up two of us. Um, I did well on the test. Again, I, I had to do like a suit and tie interview. I didn't have no suit and tie, right? And I, I told these guys like, hey man, for, for me, like this is my second chance. They're like, hey, why should we let you on our team? And I'm like, I tell you what, like I, I would die in training, I would die to be on this team. I will give you guys everything I have. I don't know what pararescue is all about, but I'm going to find out and I'm going to find what I'm good at and I'm going to be an asset to this team and I will do whatever it takes to be here at this unit and I'm so grateful for this opportunity. My dad is a PJ. I know a little bit about pararescue. It runs in my blood and I would just be honored if you guys accepted me on your team. And they did. So I swore in um, shortly after. Um, I turned. Yeah, I got. A, I'm sorry, Go Jason. Ahead. I got a question for yeah. you. Is this a is this a reserve unit? Yeah, great question, Pat. So this is a reserve unit. It's a 306 okay. bus. You could try out for this unit, right? And then the PJ pipeline is two and a half years. And then after that, you have to do what's called mission qualifying training. Uh, that's six months. And then Afghanistan was popping up. So you're looking at a three to six month deployment. So with these reserve teams, you're looking at three to four years of active duty orders before you even have the opportunity yeah. To go reserve. So it was just, like I said, man, I prayed about this and, and it was just perfect. This is in Arizona. My dad's boy is the chief master sergeant of the team, the superintendent calling the shots. Uh, everything just worked out, man. Praise God for it. So uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I was like, because when you're talking about trying out specifically for that team, I was like, how the fuck is that specifically for that team? But I got you now. That makes, because uh, uh, Reserve F SF is this very similar fucking process. You're trying out with those guys, and then you go th like through the Q course and all that, and you end back up with the team. So, gotcha, gotcha. So, backing it up, backing up to this interview. Did you did you interview in this tracksuit? <laughs> I interviewed in the tracksuit, bro. <laughs> He's like, that's all I had. That's dude. all I had, dude. It was an Adidas tracksuit, all black with gold stripes on the side, my man. Dude, they're like, what in the fuck is this guy doing, man? But like, I know you probably explained yourself, you know, like, look, I don't have much, but here I am, man. Like, this is all, yeah. this is all I got. Like, hey, man, I was stealing chicken from Walmart, for goodness sake, man. This is the God best damn, I got, dude. dude. My, I'll let my performance oh, speak for me, right? You, you know, I didn't have no money to get me a suit, so. Yeah, you got your body and your mind, dude. Suits don't really fucking matter anyway, man. That's awesome, man. So they fucking say, Roger that, you're 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 we're gonna give you a chance to fucking try for the club. So how long from the from that time do you head off to the pipeline? Dude, that was August seventeenth when I did that tryout. They shipped me out on October twenty eighth. And um, one cool thing ab about my basic training class, and Jay will will get a kick out of this. So uh, they did this experiment. 
in 2008. And, and now it's actually the way that the Air Force does their, their special warfare candidates when they go through boot camp. But the experiment was to put all Air Force special warfare candidates into the same basic training flight. And the Air Force recruited this MTI from the Marine Corps, who was a recon Marine. And his name uh, was Carl Little. And this dude was about six foot five, 245 pound black dude. Reminded me a lot of major pain. He was super witty and he was just evil as hell. And uh, I keep in touch with him to this day, man. I love him to death. And, uh, you know, I just credit him for, for a lot of things and establishing a good baseline in my life and, and teaching myself and the boys how to be hard. And, uh, and, and how to not feel sorry for ourselves, how to take accountability. And he brought that, that Marine Corps mentality, as crazy as it sounds, into our Air Force basic training flight. And uh, we were That's flight awesome. 065 of, uh, of 2008. And I tell you what, man, one cool thing is there were 65 dudes in this basic training flight. And about a week into basic training, he go. He was just smoking us in the day room, as he called it. And the whole floor was just covered in sweat. And out of nowhere, he goes, hey, listen. He goes, Vecchio, Salgado, Smitty, Sweet, and Rincon, stand up. And so we just stood up, man. And like, why the – dude, he's about to kill us, man. He goes, listen. He goes – these are the only mother effers that are going to make it. He goes, all y'all other sorry asses. He goes, y'all are going to be in security forces. He goes, now get your asses back down. And I kid you not, we all made it, dude. We, we all made it through through selection. And uh, it, it's just crazy how, how he was able to, to pick the guys uh, that were going to make it. And, uh, and so I, I graduated basic training there in, in, in 2008. And uh, at the time, the, the PJ selection course was called Pararescue Indoctrination, same course that my dad went through. And, and man, these courses were two and a half months long. And we'd start with like 100 dudes. And there'd only be like three or five guys that would graduate. Now, mind you, keep, keep in mind, like dudes didn't even know what they were getting into back then. So like week one, you're losing 30, 40 guys just in the pool competency sessions. But the thing about PJ Indoc, was that every single day you're rucking, running, getting smoked, doing calisthenics, doing distance runs, and then you got to do two hours of swimming and then two hours of water confidence. And then you get your ass absolutely crushed for another two hours after that. You're carrying logs around all the time. You got to guard them all night. Instructors are coming and trying to steal them for you or catch you slipping. And so there's just no rest for the wicked at PJN Doc. And if that's not bad enough, the first week, the evaluation standards you get tested on on Monday, and then every single week all the way up to week 10, the evaluation standards increase. So like week one, you're just doing a basic Air Force pass test as they called it. Now it's called the IFT, which is 1.5 mile run, 500 meter swim, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups for time, a couple underwaters, uh, 25 meter underwater swims versus week 10, you're doing 50 meter underwater with no push-off, you're doing buddy breathing, which is passing 
in a snorkel back and forth for two and a half minutes while the instructor just beats the tar out of you, tries to drown you, puts water in your snorkel, just annihilates you, full combat tops and bottoms on. Uh, you're doing five knot underwater knot tying series, uh, something called ditch and dons where you got to tread water with weight and all your equipment and then dive down, take it all off, come back up, tread water with weight, come back down, put it back on. You got a six mile run evaluation that has to be done in under 44 minutes, your pull-ups, your sit-ups, your push-ups, all of these things, right? So even if you're a stud, if you just get in the red on one of these evaluations, like you're done. So I remember we'd have guys that were just phenomenal athletes, but they missed like sit-ups or something by one, or they missed the 3,000 yard fence swim by like five seconds. Sorry, dude, you're out. Nowadays, man, the Air Force will recycle you and give you remediation training and put you in like human performance coach training and then put you right back in, right? Too many too many dudes died in PJN, Doc. They got rid of the course. Everyone that went into Air Force wanted to be a PJ. Not enough guys were going into combat control and all that. So in 2017, they got rid of the PJN, Doc, course. Now it's called assessment and selection, and you go in with an Air Force Special Warfare contract, you don't even get to choose if you're going to be a PJ or not. They select wow. you into pararescue. But back in the day, man, this PJN dot course was was no joke. We're talking like nine to nine to nine point five dudes out of ten are are, are going to be gone. So yeah, I was, uh, I was, that was something I was going to I was going to yeah. ask you about that because I know that the Air Force Special Operations has changed significantly in just the last couple of years. Just all that they've the different changes in the recon courses or, or the recon, whatever it's called now. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. Hasn't it just in the past few years as well? Yeah, man, the air force has invested a lot of money into trying to, to break rule number one of special operations. And that's trying to mass produce soft. Um, it's a big experiment, right? So they've got the delayed entry program. So like they lowered all their standards for the initial fitness test. When I went through, it's called the past test, right? Same exact evolutions as this IFT, but back in the day, you had to do your swim in 10 minutes, 20 seconds. You had to do your run, your 1.5 mile run in 10 minutes, 10 seconds. You had to knock out 10 pull-ups, 60 push-ups, 50 sit-ups, and then do two by 25 meter underwaters on a two minute 30 interval. Fast forward to now, you just got to do the swim in 15 minutes or less. You got to do the freaking 1.5 mile run. I think it's like 1030. I think the pull-ups are like six. And so what the Air Force is doing is they're, they're basically bringing guys in and lowering the standards and saying, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to give you this delayed entry program training. And so they dropped $25 million on this contract with a company called T3I, and they've got all these retired, disabled combat veterans, you know, PJs, combat controls, great dudes, don't get me wrong most of them no fitness background and they come in and they smoke these guys in workouts give them a fitness test and that's about it man and that's your delayed entry program but what you owe the air force to even get into the delayed entry program you got to swear in first and you got to go to meps so the air force is in their mind they're like hey man we're not going to invest all this time in you just to send you to meps and you disqualify medically because for our listeners out there one of the hardest things about special operations is getting your contract 
Like 30% of y'all are going to disqualify medically and you're going to need a waiver. So it is a smart move on the Air Force to front load MEPs, um, but they give you that delayed entry program, right? And then what they also establish is called the Special Warfare Candidate Course. And they've changed the name of this like three times. That's the that's the newest name, but this is a, an eight-week prep course. So after you get done with basic training now, the Air Force will, will send you to this eight-week prep course. And that's where they teach you how to pack your rucksack, do proper push-ups. They give you like Olympic lifting training. They give you nap time, nutrition training, like mobility courses. I mean, they've invested heavily in their guys, right? And then after that, you get to do more training. And then you go to this assessment and selection course. It's not two and a half months. It's 15 days. And after you finish that course, then they vector you into the career field that you, that they feel is best for you. And if you're a top performer, you do get to choose, which is good. And then instead of going straight to combat dive school, like it was back in my day, they put you through pre-dive, right? So you get to do you get to do prep for dive school. So I, it's, it's as if the Air Force is just trying to over-prep guys, mass-produce soft. Uh, I love my Air Force. I love being a PJ, uh, but I am highly disappointed uh, at the Air Force lowering the standards because one of the reasons why everyone wants to be the SEALs is SEALs have a reputation of being the best. And Bud's has this reputation of being like the hardest gauntlet, the hardest crucible out there. And there's guys that just go into the SEAL teams because they want that challenge. And that's why yep. so many people wanted to be PJs. They weren't into medicine. They just wanted to be the best. And once you lower those standards and put everyone, combat control, TACP, pararescue, all on the same playing field, it takes away that elite status of pararescue. So as you can tell, I'm a little bit disappointed on the Air Force's decision, but I hope that what they're doing is, is going to benefit in the long run. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know yeah. how that stuff is, man, and Jason knows too. It's, it's within the soft community, the programs for selection are so cyclical. It, it, the, you'll get them in, in another two years. The entire process will change again, and it'll, you know – Especially now, there's no wars, no nothing significant, and and you're gonna have them. Everybody's gonna start slimming down, and they're gonna start a, a weeding process more, you know. So that stuff will change again. It'll change again in, you know, two years. Ebb and a flow, man. Ebb and a flow. There's definitely something yep. looming on the horizon. So, yeah, that unfortunately, uh, you. So you make it through two and a half years. Of, of this, you know, long, soft pipeline that every branch, you know, it seems to be like a two-year pipeline, plus or minus. Uh, you know, you, you, you get pinned, you, you get your, 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 uh, your badge, uh, you know, you graduate. And then, and then what happens, man? Like, you go to your first unit. Which unit was that? Yeah, man. So, so in pararescue, what makes our pipeline long is a lot of pipelines, like guys go through all their formal schools after they get their beret versus in pararescue, immediately after you graduated PJN doc, you went into combat dive school. And then after combat dive school, you went to SEER. After SEER, you went to Army Airborne. After Army Airborne, you went to a civilian-based EMT basic course. And then you do a full civilian EMT paramedic course. And then after you graduate that and become a nationally registered paramedic, then you go to HALO school. So I went to Navy Freefall with the SEAL team. It was a SQT team. So these guys weren't SEALs yet. They were trainees just like I was. Uh, One of the best- San Diego? 
Dude, Tack Air out in San Diego, one of the yeah. best times in my life, man. Yeah, yeah um, dude, I had a, I, it's funny. I had a bunch of I had a bunch of PJ. That's where I went through free fall. And I had a bunch of PJ trainees in my fucking class, and we actually <laughs> had one of the instructors. I don't know if he's still there. There was a fucking older dude. He had like blonde hair, or whatever. But he was a he was a former PJ that was out there, and the fucking uh, the the all the PJ trainees love that dude. Um, but yeah, man, that was a good course. Yeah, man. There's two OGs that are still there. Uh, a guy named Jay Stokes, who I actually had on my podcast. Uh, he's a former Green Beret. Um, he was uh, on, on a team called the Greenlight Team. For those of you guys that don't know about Greenlights, our listeners out there, check those guys out, man. Talk about bad dudes. They jumped in backpack nukes. These are Green Berets, kind of like Mac V. Sog during uh, Vietnam. I mean, baddest of the bad. So Jay Stokes, um, again, had him on my podcast. If you guys want to give it a, a listen on the Send Me podcast. And then a guy named Jay Wallace. These are both Guinness World Record holders when it comes to jumps. Jay did 640 jumps. Jumps, halo jumps, free fall jumps in a 24-hour period. He's got the world record for it. Dude, it sounds absolutely insane, right? Uh, but but he did it. And, and so uh, so I, I went to this free fall school. Uh, and then after free fall school, you got to go through six months of this course called the Pararescue Apprentice course. And uh, it's it's at that point where I took the, the Sockham medic test. So so PJs don't go to Sockham anymore, right? But we can take the advanced tactical practitioner test. And if you, you pass this test, then you are a special operations command medic. Um, so I actually passed this test. But check this out. So I told you guys about my dad, right? Well, my dad... Uh, unfortunately, he divorced my mom. So I told you guys, like, my mom was, you know, mentally com completely gone. And, and, you know, God bless her. She's doing great now. She's happily remarried. Uh, but my dad went bankrupt. Mom's dying, right? And so all my dad knows to do is hit up Chief Sanchez as well. And he's like, hey, man, you got any spots left at the 306? Sanchez is like, yeah, man. So I kid you not. At 41 years old, my dad re-enlists through the 306, and this man and I, my dad, are roommates at Kirtland Air Force Base in the freaking pipeline, sharing a bathroom, dude. Like, he's got one one room, I've got the other room, bathroom's in the middle, and like, you know, this, this is tough times. Like, my dad had just, he, he left my mom, and, and you know... You know, I've I've heard you know his reasons for that, and I love my dad very much. I respect him, and and we're on great terms now. Um, but but this was tough times for me, man. And and I mean, the fact that my dad and I are in the pipeline together uh, was just surreal. So this last six month course, my dad actually had to go back through, right? Because back in his day, you know, they didn't have all the technology and the equipment that we had. PJs weren't EMT paramedics at the time, so he had to go through about a year of pipeline. And, uh, and dude, my, my dad and I are freaking teammates, right? And so uh, to answer your question, Jason, I, I graduated uh, PJ school after two and a half year pipeline on April 18th, 2011. Uh, my dad got set back for something. So he was, uh, he graduated in the class behind me. Um, but he was, uh, he actually gave me his beret at my graduation. And uh, I had the honor of, of giving him my beret uh, at his graduation six months later, man. Um, so that's definitely one of the highlights of my career. And, and, and I've talked to all kinds of people. I've searched far and wide. And, and from my understanding, my dad and I are the only two special operators to serve, father-son special operators to serve at the same team at the same time. 
What did, what did your instructors say when you guys were there together? That had to be a fucking trip. I've never heard anything like that in my life. Yeah, I want to hear dude, this. Uh, dude, <laughs> dude it, it, it was a, a trip, man. Like, uh, the, the, I'll just keep it short, man. The instructors definitely like my dad a little bit more than me. We can put it that way, man. Like, I, I, was a, I was a wild man. And, you know, my dad's obviously 41 years old, so he was humble and, and chill and relaxed, you know. And, and dude, I, I was just a, uh, I was a loose cannon in the Air Force. <laughs> we, we'll put it that way. I, so was there, a little, uh, was there a little bit of a believability factor? Or did they, like, did the, any of the instructors like, fuck, no, shut the fuck up. Just because you guys have the same last name, was there any, like, did they not buy it at first or anything? Oh, they bought it, dude. And I mean, I freaking, dude, I got crushed by instructors when they found out my dad was a PJ man. They're like, dude, your dad's a PJ. We're really oh going to give it to you good. So it was it was tough, man, going through the pipeline when, when you got instructors like Bill Sign and, you know, Knutson and some of these guys that like knew my pops, man. They, they, they gave it hard to me, man. No doubt. Do you guys, do you guys look at all alike? Yeah, man. My, my dad and I definitely look alike. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's fucking cool, man. It's he's definitely got unique, man. He's got the same last name and everything. So you uh, you graduate. So you go you go back to that unit, man. So walk us through, you know, active duty. You walk us through actually being a, a pararescue man now. So what's the next years look like? Yeah, man. So, so like I said, uh, you know, I tried out for a reserve unit, right? But I was looking at four years of being on active duty orders at that reserve unit. And, and at the time, this is 2011 when I graduated the PJ pipeline, Afghanistan's popping off. And so PJs had three major taskings in Afghanistan. One of them is Bastion Airfield, also known yep. as Camp Leatherneck. Yep, and uh, there's about 10,000 Marines there at the time. And uh, that's in Helmand province, right? All the opium fields just outside of Lashkar Gan near the Nadi Ali River and the Helmand River Valley. And then you've got the Kandahar tasking. So that's a little bit east of, uh, of Bastion Airfield. Uh, and then up north, you, you, you got Bagram. Um, and so uh, Bastion was, was where things were really popping off. And uh, I was really hoping to, to get that deployment. And uh, go figure, man, um, our unit got tasked with a, a bastion deployment to Helmand Province about six months after I graduated the pipeline. So as soon as I, I got to my unit, uh, I started what's called mission qualifying training. And this is where you take all the skills of a PJ and you put it to use on the battlefield. And so uh, I was doing things like partisan link up and like advanced SEER school, uh, close quarter combat. Uh, our unit hired this, uh, this SEAL Team 6 dude to come out and give us training uh, for close quarter battle and mount training for our listeners. That's military operation, urban terrain. And this dude somehow rented out the abandoned New Mexico State Penitentiary where they filmed The Longest Yard with Nelly. And I'll never forget, man, my dad and I actually went on on that uh, that TDY together. And, uh, and dude, it's it's a CQB nightmare trying to, trying to learn CQB at a freaking prison, right? Uh, but we had like sim rounds on week three, and, and we just learned everything we could ever care to learn uh, about CQB uh, from this group of SEAL Team 6 guys. It was phenomenal training. Uh, really enjoyed my time with those guys. Really enjoyed being able to do CQB training with my dad. Um and then uh, my dad actually told me that uh, that Chief Sanchez was was going to retire, and so Chief Sanchez is like, "Hey, dude, I'm not really allowed to do this, but 
I want to take you and your dad on a halo jump. So like the, the air force had to like rewrite some of the AFIs because my dad and I were serving together. And like one of those AFIs was that quote, father, son are not allowed to, to do training or missions together in military aircraft. So what chief Sanchez did is he got us lift tickets at skydive, Arizona in twin otters on civilian status, even though we were on military orders and he did his last jump with my dad and I, man. And I got that jump on video, dude. It was absolutely surreal. Uh, my dad was freaking sky trash, dude, freaking falling all over the sky. But Sanch was like chasing him down and then chased me down. And we all got to dock together in midair, man. And, and it was a good time. Um, so that's some of the, some of the, the best memories of my career was, uh, doing a CQB course out in, uh, the abandoned New Mexico state penitentiary with my dad and, uh, and doing that halo jump. But, but they were spinning us up for war, man. And, and we ended up getting that tasking, uh, to Bastion. Unfortunately, they they did not allow uh, both my dad and I to go, uh, so I was able to, to go, and uh, my dad had to, to had to sit that deployment out, man. What year was that? That was 2012, man. I, I went to Bastion uh, in March of 2012, um, right during the spring offensive. Gotcha, man. In my, the back end of my 09 deployment, dude, we stayed at uh, Camp Calero, which was the Green Beret base right there. Uh, you know where that's at. It's FOB, so, yeah. Yeah, a little tiny fob within within uh, Bastion. So yeah, I'm very familiar with that that AO man, that and that shell hall and that coffee shop. So uh, <laughs> yeah, dude, Hellman was no fucking joke for our listeners out there, dude. That was the the apex of fighting in Afghanistan. So fob rob, you know that whole area is shit sandwich, man. At that time, for sure. Yeah, man, it was the Wild West, no doubt. And, and you guys just had Bobby Restaino, Body Count Bobby, shout out to you on your podcast. Uh, Bobby was was pulling uh, recon missions out there, uh, and I yeah. don't remember the, the unit he was with, man, but, uh, but Bobby and I actually brushed shoulders a couple times, man. Recon came into our tent and was like, hey, guys, like here's the deal. We're about to go do some hits, and we want to bring some PJs with us to set up some casualty collection points in case our, our guys get jacked up. And so we had this tasking out there that we created and it was called the guardian angel tactical response team. And this was somewhat of a rescue recovery, quick reaction force. Uh, we also had a casualty evacuation platform. So you had like three different uh, Vac platforms out there. You had the army and that was their red cross bird. So those are all your 68 whiskeys. That was call sign dust off. And then you had yep. this British CH 47 and they were called tricky and tricky had a sniper team. They had like an anesthesiologist, like nurse anesthetist, like all kinds of paramedics on the, on the bird. I mean, it was, it was a heck of a rescue platform. And then you had us and we were call sign guardian. What was unique about our platform is that, you know, the Army's a Red Cross bird. So, like, they're not bringing any guns to the fight, right? We've got two HH-60 Pavehawks on every mission that we go in. We got three PJs on the trail bird. We got two PJs on the lead bird, a combat rescue officer. And each of those helicopters got a pilot, co-pilot, and two 50-cal gunners. And we didn't like nice. to roll with mini guns because they blew a lot of rounds off and they didn't do as much intimidation to the enemy, right? So 50-cal, we had what's called party pack on our birds. And one of the rounds was armor piercing. The other round was a splash round, so it had a three-meter kill radius. And then the other round was a tracer round. 
And then myself, I carried an M4A1 with a 203 on it. Uh, for our listeners out there, that's a grenade launcher. Uh, and then we also had a Mark 48 and an enhanced battle rifle uh, on the bird as well in case we needed support weapons. And so that Mark 48 had a 100-round drum on it. I mean, this was no joke. So when we went into the zone, we brought heavy firepower. So we were almost like a, a quick reaction uh, casualty evacuation platform. Uh, and a lot of the, the guys that we would go and rescue were Marines and Brits. And, and at the time, this was the ISAF force, right? And, and ISAF yeah. had everything from like Jordanians to Brits to Danes. These guys, these Danes, man, they, they're like six foot seven, six foot eight, all bearded out, just absolute savages, right? <laughs> just absolute door kicking savages, right? And uh, and we would go on every type of mission from like just a, a standard like transport where you know some dude was on a fob and and the medics or the docs on the fob didn't have the the treatment or the equipment to take care of them. Uh, and we also went on uh, missions where it was hot LZs and uh, nobody else would would fly into it, man. And we had to get off the bird, aggress the enemy. Uh, rescue our guys and, and get out. So uh, those were the two taskings that I did, the, the Guardian Angel Tactical Response Team uh, and the Casualty Evacuation Platform. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you guys were like mini cast, dude. You know, support, but you also had, you know, some firepower, dude. That's, that's it's a pretty smart and safe move on your part, man. Wow. Thanks for listening, and check back next week for part two with PJ Jason Sweet and the guys from Savage Actual. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.